Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. On April 2nd, 1982, Argentinian forces invaded the British overseas territory of the Falkland Islands. Despite the huge 8,000-mile distance involved, the British military undertook the extraordinary task of sending warships and troops to the Falklands. I'm your host, James Rogers, and for the month of April on the Warfare Podcast, we mark the 40th anniversary of the Falklands War with a series of special episodes. We interview veterans from both the Argentinian and British sides of the conflict and draw on knowledge from war historians and expert academics. In this episode, I welcome Professor Klaus Dodds back onto the podcast. Klaus is Professor of Geopolitics at Royal Holloway, the University of London. An expert in security and the Antarctic, amongst many other things, Klaus provides us with the insight we need to understand the past, present and future of the Falklands. Hi Klaus, good to have you back on the podcast. How are you doing? How have you been? Good to be back. Thanks very much for asking. It seems like a long time since we were talking about Ian Fleming and James Bond, but I know we're moving on to another subject also very close to my heart. Yes, you are a man of many, many talents. Last time you were on, I think I called you our resident international man of mystery. I know that your day job is a professor of geopolitics at Royal Holloway. You're also an expert on James Bond, Ian Fleming, and amongst other things, you focus on geopolitics, security, ice, and the Antarctic. And I suppose, in a weirdly interesting way, all of those topics bring us together to the focus of our podcast today, which is the Falklands War, because it really does tie together your research interests. So let's talk about the geopolitics of the Falklands War and perhaps start with the basics to form a little bit of an explainer to provide us with some context to those events that took place 40 years ago this month. So I guess, first of all, what is the Falklands? Where are the Falklands? How many people live there? I think that's a really great place to start because actually, just in by way of context, I was 13 years old when the news broke that the Argentines had invaded the Falkland Islands. And unlike other 
children of my age. I knew exactly where the Falklands were because I was a map obsessive at a very early age and I also collected stamps. So I had quite a strong sense that the Falklands were and are located in the southwest Atlantic. They are composed of two main islands, the East and West Falkland, and there are many, many more islands that are part of the Falkland Islands. And at the time, the population was around 2,000 people, well, just under. And the main settlement is called Stanley, although at the time, newspaper reporting always referred to it as Port Stanley. And if you just want a sense of the size of the Falkland Islands, collectively, it's about the size of Wales. So we are talking about some substantive real estate. And for much of its history, sheep farming was really the dominant activity. But of course, if you're wondering why the British in particular became so interested in the Falkland Islands, the other element of the story, of course, is really about shipping routes. So the Falkland Islands represented an important stopping off point for ships going back and forwards through the Drake's Passage round Cape Horn. And it was also a place where ships could be, for example, bunkered and also repaired. So the Falklands had this kind of strategic significance in the 19th century in particular, and that ran into the 20th century. But I think it's important to stress that the British occupation of the islands really starts on a permanent footing from 1833 onwards. Before that, the history is somewhat more contested with Argentina, Britain, France, and the remnants of the Spanish Empire, all at one stage, arguing that they had a kind of fleeting presence on the islands, or in some cases more than fleeting. But really, in terms of our focus of attention, we're really looking at a kind of British occupation of the islands that starts from the 1830s onwards, as I say, on a permanent footing. I never knew that the Falklands were as large as Wales. That's so interesting. And I'm just trying to think for our international listeners how to best compare that, because those who don't know how large Wales is, I suppose it's a similar size to maybe the state of New Jersey or Slovenia or something like that, I can rapidly Google and find that it's an area of 20,782 square kilometres. So there you go. Don't say I don't put my research in. I was just about to tell you it's about 20,000 square kilometres, but then I was hesitating, thinking, actually, I should say 12,000 square miles for British listeners. But I think we've covered it. It's that kind of space. So it's not insignificant. I mean, one of the things that sometimes maps can do, as we know, is they not only distort distance, so it's also important that listeners know that the islands are 8,000 miles from London, for example, and they are considerably closer to the coastline of Argentina. You're talking hundreds of miles. So I think that's important to bear in mind as well, so that when news broke that the islands had been invaded by an Argentine task force, there were many people, I remember this distinctly from conversations with a family and friends, who thought the islands were somewhere off the coast of Scotland, were really genuinely confused in terms of where they might be. I suspect much to the disappointment and anger of Falkland Islanders who woke up to that momentous day to discover that life had been turned upside down. 
I suppose that makes sense. It sounds a little bit like Falkirk or something like that. It sounds somewhat Scottish. But then, of course, the Argentinian name for them is the Malvinas. And so that might take us a little bit towards a different part of the world in our understanding geographically of where they are. And, and you mentioned that in terms of their history, they have been settled by the French, the British, the Spanish and the Argentines. But when did the Falkland Islands become British overseas territory? That's comparatively recently. One of the stories of the islands is actually how they become, in a way, sort of constituted as different sorts of territories. So, of course, from the 1830s onwards, you have the idea that they're simply a crown colony, I suppose. You really then have to fast forward to the latter part of the 20th century, when, first of all, they get reframed as dependent territories, and then they're reclassified along with a series of other territories, such as Bermuda, for example, Pitcairn, British Indian Ocean Territory, as overseas territories. But one of the big shifts that happens really straight after the Falklands-Malvinas War in 1982 is that the islanders are offered unequivocally British citizenship. And then prior to that, they'd had a kind of, I suppose, a sort of weaker form of citizenship. This was now being very, very clear. They are absolutely to be considered on a similar par to any other citizen, for example, you might encounter, say, in the United Kingdom as opposed to the islands. Well, let's jump ahead that, I suppose, 100 years or so when we were talking back to it being primarily a a sheep farm and and a shipping point to that point in 1982, which we could call, I suppose, the South Atlantic Campaign, but otherwise known as the Falklands War. What were the conditions that led Argentina to invade the island? What were their justifications? First of all, I think it's really important to say that Argentina has claimed the islands as an integral part of the Argentine Republic. It's not always made that claim with the same kind of vigour as was patently obvious, for example, in the late 1970s, early 1980s. But I think it's really important to let listeners know that, as the 1994 Constitution makes very clear, this is absolutely considered to be part and parcel of the Republic. You often find in Argentina people will refer to the islands as the little lost sisters, as a kind of euphemism for the islands, and this desire, this strongly held desire to have the islands brought back into the Argentine Republic. And that kind of sense of profound dispossession is also captured somewhat in, for example, primary and secondary education, so every Argentine citizen will grow up understanding only too well that the Falklands Malvinas are again part and parcel of the Argentine Republic, almost like the national identity, cultural affiliation with the islands. The second thing is that in the run-up to the 1982 invasion, there was a very strong sense that the Falklands were strategically and resourcefully important. So you got a very strong tradition in Argentina, particularly through geopolitical writing, arguing that the reason why the British stubbornly retained the Falklands was not that they were so concerned about the well-being of 2,000 people. It was because they knew 
that the waters and the seabed around the Falkland Islands were filled with fish, oil and gas. And that was the reason why the British were holding on to the islands. Now, a footnote to all of this is at that point, there had been no history of fishing, oil and gas exploitation in the islands, in or around the islands, by the British or Falkland Islands authorities. So when the islands were invaded in 1982, it was a sheep-based economy, first and foremost. There was none of that activity. But many Argentine geopolitical writers believed, however, it was only a matter of time before the British would exploit these extra resources. Strategically, third point, it's really important to bear in mind that in the late 1970s and early 1980s, Argentina was in the grip of a vicious military junta. And the Argentine junta had already been waging a dirty war against its own citizens. So this is a really, really unpleasant, painful period in Argentine history. The military regime was also aggressively anti-communist. And it looked to countries such as apartheid South Africa as another anti-communist ally. And in the late 1970s, plans were hatched to create what was termed a South Atlantic Treaty Organization. So it would be like a NATO equivalent for the South Atlantic. Now, this turned out to be important because Argentina and South Africa had really quite close military connections. And there's really some evidence as well that South Africa helped Argentina in the proceedings before the 1982 conflict with intelligence sharing. And the two countries spoke quite frequently about how they could help to secure the South Atlantic as a zone of peace and cooperation, and one where, for example, communist forces or unwanted third parties would be kept at bay. So I think there were three drivers that really helped to shape Argentine thinking prior to the April 1982 invasion. And of course, the fourth is worth just mentioning briefly, is the military regime was also entering into probably the most severe crisis of legitimacy. By 1982, it was obvious, particularly to residents in the major cities like Buenos Aires, that thousands of citizens simply were disappearing and presumed executed by the regime in their relentless paranoia about communist forces seeking to overwhelm Argentina. So that kind of Cold War anti-communist hysteria was incredibly important in Argentina at that period in time. So is it fair to say that this was a somewhat easy nationalistic win for the Argentinian junta? And actually one that potentially, I suppose, you could blame British politicians for in an ever so slight way. Because before Margaret Thatcher, enduring her early time in power, and including with her predecessor, Callaghan. Was the Falkland Islands not quite a neglected and remote colony that really didn't register much on the British map? I think one of the arguments that was made, certainly in the aftermath of the 1982 conflict, was Britain accidentally gave off an impression that the Falklands were not considered to be an important part of UK foreign policy thinking. 
Two things struck me, I think, when I was researching the Falklands, and in particular, certainly when I visited the islands, and I have done on multiple occasions, was a comment I think Peter Carrington, the then Foreign Secretary, made when I think he remarked that the Falkland Islands were foreign policy number 242. I think that was the number he gave. And another observation I think was credited to James Callaghan, a former British Prime Minister, sorry, in the 1970s, to be clear, when he talked about the dangers of the dots on the map. He sort of made this argument that sometimes you have to be careful about the very smallest places because they look and feel insignificant, but that there are moments when they also have that capacity to blow up in your face and actually to remind you that sometimes the small things, the little things, can have an extraordinary importance. And again, just for context, it's worth stressing that in the late 1970s, and in particular, I think, around the time of the 1981 UK Defence Review, cost-cutting was very much on the agenda. And one of the things that was being cut was the patrol ship HMS Endurance. And HMS Endurance was an incredibly important naval asset because it had as its area of operation, of course, the Falklands, the South Atlantic and the Antarctic. And the other thing that it was really important and probably not well understood at the time, certainly by British policymakers, was that Argentina sees the Falkland Islands, South Georgia and the Antarctic Peninsula area as one integrated region. Whereas at the time, British foreign policy thought of the Falklands as a separate issue from South Georgia from the Antarctic and thought that actually if we separated it all out, it was easier to manage. The Argentines in their imagination, if you like, or their mental maps, never made that distinction. They saw all of these territories as integral to the Argentine Republic. And unfortunately for Britain, we had the effective sovereignty of the islands, the Falkland Islands, as well as South Georgia. So it's really important to understand that actually the conflict itself over the Falkland Islands actually started in South Georgia sometime earlier. So really the first point of friction was actually in Gritvikin, the main settlement of South Georgia. And it's no accident because the Argentines saw all these disputed territories as deeply interlinked. Your daily reality is the fact that at any moment when the guard comes along, he might just pull out his gun and shoot you in the back of the head. Imagine boarding a flight thinking you're heading on holiday, but instead, you get taken hostage by Saddam Hussein. All the tanks are in rows and they're all pointing their guns at us at the hotel. And I, I've never seen anything like it in my life. Imagine being used as a human shield, put in the line of fire. We're in trouble. We are under attack. Do not leave where you are. That man has been shot. He has been shot. My God. Listen to the secret history of Flight 149 to hear the shocking story behind one of the biggest cover-ups in modern history. We know the truth. We know what actually happened. I was there. Subscribe now.
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So take us into that moment on South Georgia. What were the events that transpired there? If I remember correctly, it was scrap metal merchants from Argentina that went to take down the old whaling stations. Is that right? Or at least that was the cover. That was the cover story. The cover story... This is where we get to your James Bond credentials, Klaus. The cover story was a contract to remove abandoned whaling paraphernalia. And so the idea was that, you know, this Argentine scrap metal merchant was going to be stripping metal from Gritviken, taking it back to Argentina, presumably to be recycled and put to good use. Unfortunately, there also just happened to be an Argentine occupation party that was also amongst the scrap metal operation. And then what ensured was a short conflict involving some of the British forces stationed there, as well as British scientists caught up in that particular encounter. So that was really, this is March, February, March 1982. This is really when we first began to, I think, discover that the Argentines had ill intent, if you like, and it started in South Georgia. And then, of course, in late March, early April, Argentine task force then turned its attention far more substantially to the Falkland Islands itself. So I think it was coordinated action. It was highly opportunistic. But it also, I think, sort of intrinsically makes sense because both islands, South Georgia and the Falkland Islands, 
are claimed by Argentina. The Antarctic, by the way, just for the record, was not touched by the 1982 conflict. And that is in large part because the Antarctic is governed by the 1959 Antarctic Treaty that prohibits any form of military activity. So the Antarctic was spared. But in case listeners think, well, why would there have been conflict in the Antarctic? It's worth bearing in mind that in the late 1940s and early 1950s, there was considerable tension, actually, between Britain and Argentina over Antarctic research stations. And in 1952, famously in Hope Bay, an Argentine party fired over the heads of British scientists at the Hope Bay station. So nobody was killed, but it was not out of the question that conflict might have spread to Antarctica, but thankfully it never did. Well, we're going to touch on that in a few moments. But first of all, I'd just like to draw on your own experience and your expertise having visited the Falkland Islands so many times to give us a little bit of an understanding of the geography of the islands and perhaps also South Georgia as well. I haven't been there. I don't know if there's a a stark difference, but perhaps tell us a little about the terrain that these soldiers had to fight in because that's going to be really useful for us because over this month we have veterans from both sides of the conflict telling us about the fight itself. So, yeah, what is the geography of this region like? The first thing to say is that there are two fundamental ways of getting to the islands nowadays. So the first time I visited the islands was via an RAF TriStar flight that landed in Ascension Island. And Ascension Island is in the middle of the sort of central South Atlantic Ocean kind of close to, I suppose, the coastline of Angola. And you have a quick stopover, and then you have another eight-hour flight to the Falkland Islands. So if if you're wondering how long it takes to get to the islands by aeroplane, you're looking at 16, 18 hours of flying, something like that. And so it's a long way to go. You land at Mount Pleasant Air Base, MPA, which is located itself 30 miles outside Stanley. And that's important because in 1982, Mount Pleasant Air Base didn't exist. There was a very small airport at Stanley itself, a couple of miles outside the settlement. And there was at the time, which might surprise listeners, an Argentine air service that linked the islands to Argentina prior to the invasion, run by the Argentine military airline called LADE. Now, when you land in Mount Pleasant, one of the things you're struck by is it's a very, very beautiful but stark landscape made up of rolling hills and mountains. And really, there's a kind of expanse that would look, I think, similar to parts of northwest Scotland, for example. And certainly for many listeners, if you know this part of South America well, it would look also familiar to southern Chile and southern Argentina, sort of the Patagonian region you will not notice many trees, and you will also quickly discover that the weather can change rapidly. It's never that warm, it is always windy, and if you have, like I have, climbed some of the mountains where some of the intense fighting occurred, I can absolutely assure you when the weather changes and the snow and the wind and the sleet hits you, you begin to discover why April to June 
it was a winter war. It can be brutally cold and you can be very, very quickly horribly exposed if you're not, you know, adequately prepared. It is, as I say, it's quite an extensive set of islands, East and West Falklands. Much of the fighting was actually on East Falkland, where Stanley is based. And again, remember that in 1982, unlike 2022, there was not the network of roads and well-established tracks that you would now take for granted. But even to travel from Mount Pleasant Air Base to Stanley takes at least an hour, even though it's only, what, 25, 30 miles, as I said earlier. So travelling in the islands still takes a great deal of time, In 1982, a lot of people in the islands would use horses or mules to travel between farms and settlements. So, again, you're talking of a community, a very small community, with very, very limited infrastructure across the islands. And in some cases, if you you might have had a sheep station, and then there'd be nothing for miles and miles and miles around that sheep station. So, again, it's just worth bearing in mind, you've got a very large area with a very, very small scattered population once you get outside Stanley. And everything outside Stanley is simply referred to as camp from the Spanish Campo countryside. And so I assume that much of this infrastructure was built after the war as a means to turn the Falklands into something that internationally looked like Britain very much cared about, still cares about today, and becomes this symbol of Britishness, which I really don't think we could ever imagine any British government, not within our lifetime, that would ever negotiate with Argentina to relinquish that sovereign control. I think that's an absolutely fair summary. I mean, I hesitate to say this because let me also be very clear about this. Over 250 British and Falkland Islanders died and many, many more Argentines died. The exact number, I think, is still a matter of some contention. And to be very, very clear, there are British and Argentine men buried in the Falkland Islands. But... If I was being straightforward about this, I would have to say the invasion transformed the Falkland Islands, and it transformed it in three fundamental ways. Firstly, without question, Mount Pleasant Air Base would not have been constructed in 1984-85 had we not had an invasion. Margaret Thatcher, the then British Prime Minister, was absolutely determined that the invasion should never, ever be repeated. And so this was about creating fortress Falklands. It was about creating a critical infrastructure that would enable the British to defend and deter any future attack from the Argentine Republic. Number two, the British declared a military protection zone that later became the Falkland Islands Conservation Zone around the islands and the waters around the islands in particular. What this enabled was, in effect, a fishing industry to develop for the Falkland Islands. And what that then developed in turn was a revenue stream that generates millions of pounds every year in fishing licensing. And the key catch of the Falkland Islands Conservation Zone is squid. So if you've ever had squid in Spain, for example, the chances are you're eating Falkland Islands squid. And that money enabled, in essence, the Falkland Islands to become far more autonomous 
and far less dependent on British overseas development aid. The third critical element was that local democracy was invigorated in the islands. And so to this day, the islands elects councillors and has a very active legislative assembly. And I would suggest that probably the Falkland Islands has the most direct democracy anywhere in the world. You have these councillors who live and work amongst the community. They're incredibly accessible, for better or for worse. And that has absolutely been transformative in generating a sense of Falkland Islander nationalism, I suppose, and personhood. And I think the fourth thing to bear in mind is that also the islands have also been able to develop very successfully other activities, such as tourism, that's really enabled the economy to diversify. So it's actually presented a tremendous dilemma for Argentina. Initially, they were very reluctant to formally end hostilities with Britain at the end of the 82 conflict in mid-June. And they were, in a sense, caught in a dilemma in terms of, on the one hand, seeking at times a more cordial relationship with Britain and, and the Falkland Islands, but at the same time also wanting to press and to continue to press a claim against those islands and to say, these are the Malvinas, they belong to us. So it's, I think on the one hand, the Falklands has been transformed, but let's also not forget the loss of the Falklands also accelerated the destruction of the military regime in Argentina. So notably in December 1983, Raul Alfonsín was elected a civilian president of Argentina. So perhaps, despite the tragic loss of life, the invasion actually transformed both the Falklands and Argentina, as well as, of course, Britain. Well, thank you for taking us through that history, Klaus. And as you say, the conflict ended in June 1982 with a British victory. But perhaps you can bring us right up to date and tell us about what the British stance on the Falklands is today. Because in a world of global climate change, a global climate crisis, and, of course, potential increasing global interest in the Antarctic, are the Falklands not more important to Britain than ever before? Yeah, so I think if we're thinking about the importance, I think there's another element just worth stressing. One of the things Margaret Thatcher also notably decided upon was that investment in British Antarctic Survey ought to be increased. And so one of the things you saw post-1982 was a very deliberate investment in polar science. And it's worth noting that British Antarctic Survey, which has its headquarters in Cambridge in England, also has a local headquarters in Stanley in the Falkland Islands. And the islands alongside South Georgia, where we have a station at King Edward Point, are two elements of a a sort of British commitment to the far south that sees polar science and polar diplomacy as a way of projecting influence and power across that region, as well as, of course, being very, very clear that the Falkland Islands are an intrinsic part of the British Overseas Territories family. I think it's also true to say that climate change matters enormously to the Falkland Islands as well. And I think one of the ways it matters is the changes that are affecting the life of the South Atlantic Ocean itself. So, for example, ocean warming or ocean acidification has profound consequences for squid, for the distribution of squid and the quantity of squid. 
So one of the worries that the Falkland Islands will have going forward is that climate change actually might interfere or disrupt the amount of resource that can be harvested in the southwest Atlantic. And both Argentina and the Falkland Islands have a shared concern already with illegal fishing, often by Chinese and Korean vessels, flagged vessels, but not exclusively those two either. And I think there would be a sort of nightmare scenario, which would be a fish stock collapse, robbing the islands of its essential first order revenue that enables so much of the rest of island life to function. And then that might also then have quite profound implications for the UK in particular, in terms of, for example, renewed levels of support it might have to offer the islands and its community. And I think the other thing worth saying as well, the relationship with Argentina goes through phases. You know, we have more collaborative phases and we have, frankly speaking, more competitive phases. And I think it's worth noting that Boris Johnson, when Foreign Secretary, visited Argentina in 2018. And then two years prior to that, we'd had a joint statement between the two countries that's spoken about areas of cooperation and collaboration. It's quite obvious the Falkland Islands remains a sore point in Argentina-UK relations. If I was allowed to speculate as well, the other thing I would just draw listeners' attention to is the relationship with China. Argentina has developed an ever closer relationship with China, and in particular as part of this broader ambition known as the Belt and Road Initiative. And one thing we've noticed, at least in the UK, is that China has expressed support for Argentina over the Malvinas, and Argentina has expressed support for China over Taiwan. And I think that's something to watch very carefully as China continues to invest in Argentina, and some of that investment has been around infrastructure, particularly in the south of the country. So I think if we're looking ahead and we're thinking about an islands that are 8,000 miles away from the UK, where the Falkland Islands no longer has the privileged access it once had to European Union markets post-Brexit. And remember, Spain was a major export market for squid. The operating conditions are not necessarily getting any easier as we enter further into the 21st century. And I think you have both geopolitics, you have trade, and you also have climate change they're all going to make their impact felt. Even if you ask any islander, would you rather be part of Argentina or Britain? I'm absolutely confident, as the 2013 referendum reminded us, 99% are likely to say they want to remain a British overseas territory. Well, Klaus, I think that is a perfect time to bring the podcast to an end as you raise those concerns and issues, because you touch upon so many of them in your latest book, which I know is now out in paperback. So tell us about the book and where we can buy it. Thanks, James. So the book is called Border Wars, and it's published in paperback by Penguin. And it had the extraordinary timing of being published on the first day of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And in the book, I refer to really three types of border conflict. One is around border conflict that will come about through climate change. One is about borders that come about through territorial ambiguity, such as no man's lands. And the other is borders that are likely to become more conflictual in the future. And one of the examples I raise is around outer space. 
and the other is the sort of conflict potential borders through public health, with particularly the pandemic first and foremost in mind. I have read the book, I have reviewed the book, I can't recommend the book highly enough, and we'll put a link in the show notes. Klaus, thank you so much for your time. Thanks again, James. Thanks for listening, but before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our... Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. Free Warfare Wednesday's newsletter via the link in the show notes. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.